Well, uh, this could be a little challenging this afternoon. We have a pretty long passage, and I have a crowd that has eaten a good meal and maybe some tiredness we fight, but we'll uh, do our best to forge ahead and keep you awake. Uh, okay, I can't have you stand or I'll, I'll just get louder until I see you wake up. All right, now let's go ahead and uh, start with prayer, though, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your great grace. We thank you for your wonderful kindness that you show to your children, the privilege we have to be able to communicate with you because of the work of uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and, and uh, the work you did in our hearts to bring us out of darkness into the light. And we thank you for all that we have to look forward to and how uh, we haven't even begun to experience the, uh, the, the depths and extent of blessings that we will in the, the age to come. We thank you, though, for your blessings in this life, and we thank you for your word, which tells us how you, uh, how you work, how you worked in the past, how you are working now. Help us, Father, to learn from that as we look at uh, an example from the Old Testament of uh, a king who didn't do right, and help us to learn from it, and uh, to be faithful to you, and we ask for your understanding and help in applying, in Jesus' name, amen. So I was looking at some statistics. Um, any idea, this was, the statistic was from 2010, how long it takes, on average, for someone who's been sentenced to death to actually get executed? Any thoughts? I have 30 years, uh, 10 years. The average time, according to this 2010 statistic, was 178 months, or roughly 15 years. 15 years. And it's interesting that often between uh, wait, the sentence and waiting for the actual execution on death row, they say that nearly one-fourth of those in that situation actually die of natural causes before they actually get there. Now we understand biblically that judgment being executed speedily is important as a deterrent for crime. Um, but with a system that can take 15 years for that judgment to play out doesn't seem very threatening or discouraging of uh, the evil that we're trying to uh, deal with. But God himself sometimes takes longer to execute his justice as well than we would often naturally think. Um, God is very long-suffering. He is patient. And he often gives people time to repent or change. But uh, sometimes the, the judgment that is coming... Uh, may seem to linger, and other times it goes very quickly. But I think we have in the case of Ahab here, and why I'm mentioning these things, we see in chapter 19, as we talked about last week, how God is going to anoint a new king over Israel because Ahab has been wicked, and his wife Jezebel is uh, very wicked as well. And God's going to put a new king in uh, who is going to wipe out Ahab. 
And so our natural reading of chapter 20, after having read in 19 how Elijah was complaining about Israel, and he's like the only prophet left in all of Israel, um, that maybe judgment's coming real quick on Ahab, but it doesn't come in chapter 20. So we're actually going to see in 20, 21, and 22... It's finally 22 before we'll see that Ahab meets his end. But it doesn't come right away. And we're going to see in chapter 20 what therefore might seem at first a little confusing, where God is actually helping Israel and Ahab to get victory over the Arameans the, uh, from the country of Aram. And he helps them actually get victory, um, as we'll see. Uh, but yet, it doesn't have a good end for Ahab, as, as we'll see uh, as well. But, it's a little surprising. We might have thought right away in 20, we're going to see the end of Ahab, but that doesn't happen. God still is working. And, and while the judgment doesn't come right away on Ahab, I also think what God allows sometimes, and I think is the case here, is people to demonstrate that they really deserve the punishment that is coming. If you know what I mean. He gives them opportunity, and yet they continue to use those opportunities to do sinful things instead of repenting. And that's what we're going to see here with Ahab. So we're going to see today, it's kind of a harder message, uh, as several of these in First Kings have been, but uh, we're going to see how people in this passage are deserving of divine destruction. Um, and uh, it's a long chapter. It's 43 verses. So we're not going to read necessarily every single verse, but we'll read several of them, a lot of them, and uh, work our way through it, Lord willing, pretty quickly. So let's look at verses 1 to 4 to start. It says, Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all his army, and there were 32 kings with him, and horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria and fought against it. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, right? Um, so he's fighting against Samaria. And then it says, Then he sent messengers to the city of Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your most beautiful wives and children are also mine. The king of Israel replied, it is according to your word, my lord, O king. I am yours and all that I have. So we're going to see here, I think in the first 12 verses, actually, Aram and Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, has a presumption that they're going to have victory in this battle against Israel. And we're going to see how that plays out, but we see it starting with Aram getting ready, Ben-Hadad and his uh, army getting ready for battle, and what they do then is they make some demands, we see here in verses 2 through 4, of the king of Israel, and surprisingly, he agrees to it. Notice the demands here in 2 and 3. He says uh, in verse 2, Then he sent messengers to the city of Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, verse 3, I'm sorry, Your silver and your gold are mine. So basically, your riches are mine. I'm going to take them. And then in uh, the rest of verse 3, he says, Your most beautiful wives and children are also mine. So he's going to take his treasures and his family as well. Now if you're a king and you have an army at your disposal, do you think you're just going to give up those things easily? You would think not. 
But look at Ahab's response. He says in verse 4, It is according to your word, my lord, O king. I am yours and all that I have. In other words, uh, to borrow a phrase from uh, a Princess Bride movie. Have you seen the Princess Bride movie? As you wish, right? He's saying, as you wish, king. Uh, I can't resist you, so whatever you want, it's all yours. So he basically submits to the demands here of the king of Aram. But it's going to continue to go on. And Ahab is going to second-guess this decision. He's going to second-guess. Look at verses 5 through 9 here. It says, Then the messengers returned and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Surely I sent to you, saying, You shall give me your silver and your gold and your wives and your children. But about this time tomorrow I will send my servants to you, and they will search your house and the houses of your servants, and whatever is desirable in your eyes they will take in their hand and carry away. So basically they're following through on their threat. I'm going to take whatever we want. So, how does he respond? Verse 7. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Please observe and see how this man is looking for trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. But all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, all that you sent for to your servant at first I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Now it's kind of a funny thing because if he's going to come and take your silver and your gold and your wives and your children, what's more valuable than those things? But for some reason he's second guessing it and he gets encouragement from the elders to not consent. So he's not going to go along with the plan after all. And how do you think the king of Aram's going to respond to that. He's going to be thrilled. Oh, great, you know, you don't want to submit, that's fine. Is that how he's going to respond? No, he's, he's uh, going to be unhappy about that. So let's see in verses 10 and 11 how he responds. And, and verse 12 too. But Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, May the gods do so to me and more also if the dust of Samaria will suffice for handfuls of all the people who follow me. So in other words, I'm going to come and wipe you out. You've basically made me angry. I'm going to come and wipe you out, and I'm not going to leave any of you alive. So that's his threat, right? But notice what Ahab says back to him. This is a great quote from Ahab here. Verse 11. Ahab replied, Tell him, Let not him who girds on his armor boast like him who takes it off. What's he saying? He's saying, don't brag that you're going to have victory as if it's already over. That's the person who's taking the armor off. He's already had the battle and won. Ahab is saying, don't act like you've already had the battle and won. You haven't even put on the armor to have the battle yet. And you're bragging as if you're going to win. And that's what they were doing. They were presuming that they were going to win. So, we'll see how that goes. At verse 12, what does he do in response? It says, when Ben-Hadad heard the message, he was drinking with the kings in the temporary shelters. He said to his servants, station yourselves. So they stationed themselves against the city. So they are ready for war now. It's on, right? Aram, Ben-Hadad, they're ready to attack Israel. Now, we might think, based on what we saw in chapter 19, that this is judgment coming on Ahab. He deserves it. He's been a wicked king, right? 
So he's going to get killed and the whole city wiped out. You might think that based on what we've seen with Ahab, but that's not what's going to happen. We're going to see here instead a promise of victory from the Lord. Notice verse 13. It says, Now behold, a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver them into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So we see in verse 13, a divine messenger, an unnamed prophet. So perhaps Elijah was exaggerating a little bit. Perhaps he wasn't the only prophet carrying messages from the Lord to the king, right? So perhaps uh, I was being too easy on Elijah last week. There are, there are other prophets, apparently, besides Elijah and Elisha. So this unnamed prophet approaches Ahab and says, the Lord is going to give divine victory over this great multitude. And notice the purpose for that great victory. What's the purpose for that great victory? So that they will know that he is the Lord, right? Now it's interesting, we, we, we saw when Elijah obeyed God and, and had the uh, sacrifice that he had covered in water and uh, he called the people to follow the Lord if he's the Lord and if he's God and if Baal's really God, follow him. And the sacrifice was consumed and several people responded saying, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. But clearly, Ahab and his wife did not, right? They refused to repent and they continued in their wicked ways. But God is demonstrating here, in this battle, in spite of Ahab's wicked ways, Israel is still his people, and he is still going to get glory from rescuing them from these wicked enemies. This is what we see here in verse 13. We see also in 14, Ahab's going to say, well, how's this going to happen? What's the means of deliverance? Or how are we supposed to do this? And he says... Verse 14, by whom? So he said, the prophet says to him, Thus says the Lord, by the young men of the rulers of the provinces. Then he said, Who shall begin the battle? And he answered, You. So we see then the meeting for battle happens here. Look at verse 15. It says, Then he mustered the young men of the rulers of the provinces, and there were 232 and after them he mustered all the people, even of the sons of Israel, 7,000. Now how many do you think Aram has, Ben-Hadad has with him? Do you think it's less than 7,000? <laughs> no. In fact, we're going to read later on, it's, uh, it's over 100,000. In fact, they kill 100,000 in one day. And then 27,000 are killed another way. So they have over, um, although that, that's, uh, I believe that's uh, the latter battle, actually. But um, I don't see a number in this section here. But if you find it, let me know. I know later on it's 100,000, then 27,000. But I believe that's actually a second battle that's coming. But clearly the 7,000 is a small number in comparison. And that's purposeful. Why? Because it shows the deliverance is not coming from the strength of man. It's coming from God. 
right? God gets glory because against overwhelming odds, he is going to give the victory. So they basically start approaching the king, and um, we see that the king, uh, Ben-Hadad, and those with him are getting drunk. It's a clear sign of their overconfidence, right? They're not really getting seriously ready for battle. They're drinking, they're partying, they, they think it's going to be no sweat. It's only 7,000 people, no, no problem, right? So they get a report, verse 17, that scouts see these soldiers from Israel coming against the Syrian army here. And the king gives an order basically in verse 18 that says capture them alive. Whether they're coming for peace or whether they're coming for battle, whatever, just capture them alive. So in other words, he's not really threatened by the army of Israel. But let's look at verses 19 to 21, how we see them marching out here to victory. Uh, so look at 19. It says, So these went out from the city, the young men of the rulers of the provinces, the army which followed them. Then they killed each his man, and the Arameans fled, and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, escaped on a horse with horsemen. The king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and killed the Arameans with a great slaughter. So God gave victory to Israel. And the king of Syria escapes on a horse, gets away. But notice verse 22. The prophet again appears, and he tells them that they're going to meet again in battle later. Verse 22. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Go strengthen yourself and observe and see what you have to do, for at the turn of the year the king of Aram will come up against you. So in other words, the prophet's saying, They're coming again. You're going to have a battle again, so be ready for that. So God is giving warning to Ahab and the nation of Israel here that another battle is coming. So, the Syrians were very arrogant. They presumed because of their superior numbers, perhaps their superior weapons, they have chariots. They think they're going to easily wipe out Israel. And God intervenes, promises victory, and delivers on his promise because God is faithful and the Israelites overcome and are victorious, right? All right, look at verse 23, 24, and 25. Very interesting how the Arameans then think about what happened. They, they come up with an explanation for why they lost, and they start planning how they can win the next time. So notice their thinking. Verse 23, it says, Now the servants of the king of Aram said to him, Their gods are the gods of the mountains. Therefore they were stronger than we, but rather let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. You see their thinking there? The Syrians or the, the, the people from Aram, the people following Ben-Hadad, they think the Israelite God is only the God of the mountains. And they fought a battle in the mountains in the Samaria area. So they think that's why they lost. We were in their home territory of their God. Let's have a fight in the plains where we will have the advantage. You think that's going to work? Do you think God's going to be happy with that kind of reasoning? <laughs> that's uh, challenge accepted, right? God hears this, obviously, 
and is not going to let this kind of human reasoning stand. He is going to intervene. But look what they, they start planning out how they're going to get a victory. Verse 24, it says, Do this thing, remove the kings, each from his place, and put captains in their place, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot, then we'll fight them in the plain, and surely we'll be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. All right, so they uh, came up with this reasoning why they lost. The God of Israel is only the God of the hills and the mountains. So that's why they won, because we fought on his home territory. But now we're going to fight in the plain, the flatlands, and our gods are going to help us in the flatlands, and their God won't be able to help, us, uh, help them and give them the victory. So, verse 26, they get ready for battle. Verse 26, it says, At the turn of the year, Ben-Hadad mustered the Arameans and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. All right? So they're ready for battle. They're ready to fight. It's on. Again. Round two. It's going to be different this time? Well, let's look at verses 27, 28, uh, and essentially all the way down to 30. But let's look at how God responds to this. Verse 27 the sons of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went to meet them. And the sons of Israel camped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Arameans filled the country. So again, what you see is the Arameans have lots and lots of people on their side. Israel has so few people, they look like a, a little pack of goats. That's the, the point is they're, they're small, there's not many of them. They look like nothing compared to this gigantic army that fills up the flatlands they're in, right? So it's overwhelming odds, it seems, in favor of the Syrians. But, verse 28, Then a man of God came near and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, Because the Arameans have said, The Lord is a God of the mountains, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. God is not going to let that human reasoning stand, that he is incapable of helping them in the flatlands or the valleys. So he is going to give victory to Israel, even though they're a small number compared to this massive army. And again, why is he doing it? That people would know him. Do you remember, I, I'm confident you went through much of the Exodus with your previous pastor, if not all of it. Um, what phrase keeps coming up again and again and again with all those miracles of judgment that God does on Egypt? He says the same phrase, that, people, that you will know that I am the Lord. These miracles of judgment that he does makes him known. It may be that the people he wipes out don't come to know him, but it makes him known and respected in Israel or for generations to come. We, we today read about and rejoice in the display of God's power. He is making himself known through his great power. So they are going to have a victory because God is not going to let that human reasoning stand. And he is going to make his name known. Look at verse 29. It says, 
So they, capped, they camped one over against the other seven days, and on the seventh day the battle was joined, and the sons of Israel killed of the Arameans 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And then, and then verse 30, But the rest fled to Aphek in the city, and the wall fell on 27,000 men who were left. And Ben-Hadad fled and came into the city into an inner chamber. So we have uh, a providential destruction here of these 27,000 in addition to the 100,000. Does this remind you of another section of Scripture? Doesn't this kind of sound like the kinds of things that happen in the book of Joshua? Where God was fighting for them and in significant miraculous ways brought victory. Like there's talk of hailstones being tossed from the sky upon people and more being killed by those things than actually were killed by the sword. Very similar concept in how the Lord is fighting for his people and punishing people who deserve uh, to be punished. And yet, the king manages to escape. He's in a private hideout here, and is all. Uh, he, it sounds like he has some counselors with him there, but basically a very small group of them hiding from Israel. They've managed to escape for now and have gotten away. But essentially, the army of the Syrians has been wiped out. God gave them incredible victory. Many times in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Joshua, when they're having these battles, what were they supposed to do with the kings? Were they supposed to let them live? They are supposed to wipe them out too, right? Well, we'll see how it works out here and what Ahab does. But uh, the commanders or the counselors of Ben-Hadad actually encouraged him to seek peace. Look at uh, verse 31. His servants said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put on, our, put on sackcloth and on, on our loins and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will save your life. The idea of sackcloth is they're mourning, they're sad, there's a change of heart, if you will, a recognition that battle hasn't gone their way, and the ropes are the idea of submission, that they're submitting themselves to the king of Israel here. So this is their suggestion, verse 32. So they girded on sackcloth and put on the ropes, and they came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Is he still alive? He is my brother. Verse 33, now the men took this as an omen and quickly catching his word said, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, go bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him and he took him up into the chariot. So Ahab agrees to meet with him. He's talking to him in the chariot. And then notice verse 34, it says, Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities which my father took from your father, I will restore and you shall make streets for yourself in Damascus as my father made in Samaria. What do you think the idea is about making streets in Samaria? I, I believe the idea is we're going to trade. We're going to trade together. We're going to have peace. We're going to get along together. You'll be able to come in and trade and set up businesses and so forth and, and uh, trade resources and goods, and we'll just have great, great peace together. Verse uh, 34, the end of it, um, we see Ahab said, 
And I'll let you go with this covenant. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. God's wiped out 127,000 people. It's like that. Do you think God wants to let this man go and, 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 and have peace between Israel and these enemies of, of Israel? No. No, no, no. But um, we're going to get uh, an interesting way in which that all gets communicated to Ahab. So let's see the prophecy of death here as we finish the chapter. We're making pretty good time. We've got just a few more verses and we'll finish it up here. We'll see, first of all, uh, a prophet kind of sets up to give a message to Ahab. It's kind of interesting. Look at uh, 35 to 37 with me here. It says, Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to another prophet by the word of the Lord, Please strike me. But the man refused to strike him. Now, I realize this sounds a little harsh, but this, this is a command essentially coming from God to do this because God has a special message for this prophet to give. And if you remember earlier on in the book of Kings, when a, when a prophet was given a message from God and he didn't fulfill it, you remember what happened to him? He got killed by a lion, right? Well, same thing here in 36. Then he said to him, Because you have not listened to the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have departed from me, a lion will kill you. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion found him and killed him. All right, well, let's try another guy. Um, it said in verse 37, Then he found another man and said, Please strike me. And the man struck him and wounded him. All right, so this prophet is getting ready to see Ahab, and he's gotten himself a wound. And that's all part of the message he's going to take to Ahab. So let's see how that message goes. Verse 38, So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed by, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a man turned aside and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man, if for any reason he is missing, then your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. So, a lot of words real quick might be hard to understand, but this is what the prophet is saying to Ahab. The prophet is using an illustration, kind of like the prophet Nathan does with David. The prophet Nathan says with David, uh, there was this rich man who had all these lambs, but he wanted this one poor man's lamb, and he uh, took that one poor man's lamb and had a fe- you know, killed it, had a feast with it, and David was enraged. You know, how could th- this man needs to die? And Nathan says, you're the man. Uh, and then... Uh, told him that what he did uh, with Bathsheba and Uriah was known by God and was going to therefore be punished. Well, similar things going on here. The prophet is trying to use this illustration. What he's saying is, I'm a soldier. It's as if I'm a soldier and I was responsible to watch a prisoner that was taken captive in the battle. And they left this prisoner in my charge and they went away and somehow I got busy and I lost the prisoner. And it says the consequence for losing the prisoner will be if you let him go, it's going to be your life for his life. So he's the prisoner supposed to die, but if you let him go, you're going to die. That's what the prophet is using as an illustration. And then he's 
saying this to Ahab to get Ahab's feedback on what should happen. So notice what Ahab says. He says, while your, oh, I'm sorry, that was verse, while your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. In other words, I have no sympathy for you losing that prisoner. You shouldn't have lost him. So therefore, you deserve to die. That's what Ahab says. Uh-oh. Verse 41. Then he hastily took off the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him that he was one of the prophets, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life, and your people for his people. Verse 43, so the king of Israel went to his house, sullen and vexed, and came to Samaria. Did Ahab repent of his wrong? No, he was just discouraged and sorrowful. But God is saying, because you have let this man go that I determined should die, you're going to die in his place. Um, a number of years ago, do you, do you remember the show Trading Spaces? Did you ever see that? TLC had a show. They, they used to have a T. Wow. I'm feeling old. Um, it's probably 15, maybe 20 years ago, they had a TV show on, and it was called Trading Spaces, and it was a home renovation show. And basically what would happen is one, two different couples that were neighbors or lived near each other, they would go to each other's houses, and they would do renovations in their houses trying to get it decorated nice for their neighbor so that they would have a renovated house. So they would do this for each other, and it was, I think it was sort of a contest to see who could do a better job for the other person, and you just see all this going on in the show. Um, and it was, it was quite the uh, rage for a while. This was long before we had all the Property Brothers and um, the Gaineses and all those people doing it now, but this, this was a big thing. So in that show, they basically would trade their space and do the renovations for each other. I'm just using that as an illustration how Ahab had a man who was supposed to die, and because Ahab chooses to let him go free with no consequence, God is saying, in a sense, you've traded places with him. You let someone go that I determined deserved to die, and because you did that, therefore, you deserve to die. So that is what God is saying is uh, Ahab is under judgment for his uh, foolish decision to let this person go whom God had determined to destroy. So in conclusion, we see here that Ahab again demonstrates that he is disobedient to God. He disregards the word of God. He repeatedly refuses to submit to, to God and his word. Even though God's given them this great deliverance, he doesn't complete the process by taking out the king who's supposed to be replaced. And we're, we see from chapter 19 is going to be replaced. And Elijah's going to anoint that new king. But Ahab has repeatedly shown himself to be deserving of death. 
And we see here, um, yet God uh, continues to give some time before that comes to pass, right? God is gracious and long-suffering. And we're going to see there's another chapter here where Ahab does wrong again, um, does other great evil. And uh, God is going, though, to bring the end to Ahab. So, uh, it's hard. What, what do we take away here? Well, for one, uh, understanding the nature of God and how He works. He is just. He is just, and He is going to deal with evildoers. And that may or may not happen in our timetable and our expectations, but God is working to bring about justice. God also works, as we see here with Israel, using his people to have victory or accomplishments even though they are small. Our battles today are not the physical battles of fighting with swords, but our battle is spiritually. And though we are small and we aren't numerous, God still is at work and accomplishes great things through us. We need to trust Him. We need to be faithful to Him. And we need to recognize that God is sovereign and in control and submit to His will and be committed to obeying Him. Clearly, Ahab was not. And he is leading Israel uh, into sin and ultimately, we're going to see how it unravels for the nation of Israel that they're going to eventually be taken into captivity because of their disobedience, continual disobedience, and refusal to obey the Lord. But we need to be faithful in spite of how the rest of our nation may go, right? We enjoy at times some freedoms in our country, but we may not always have those. And we need to continue to be faithful and serve the Lord um, and trust Him to work out His good purposes, even if we are small and few in number. So let's, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that there are some. We see the prophets. We see last chapter about the remnant, a small number of people that You preserve out of the whole that serve You and are faithful to You. Father, we are discouraged often thinking about our nation, at least I am, thinking about our nation and how we have a great heritage. Israel had a great heritage too. Um, and, and yet, um, so many nowadays don't want anything to do with you and are actually, uh, even publicly many times, oppose you in your ways. And, and yet, Father, we're thankful for freedoms we have, opportunities we have. Help us to be faithful. And we do pray that you would bring about a revival in our country. But even if you don't, help us to be faithful and serve you on a daily basis, even if we are few and small number. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.